strange attraction, mass psychology, synchronicities, and occulted realities. Welcome to the Friday Farcast with Robert Phoenix. Winter is coming. Might just be the cold. Winter is coming. It's cold outside. You don't know cold. Winter is coming for him. It's either me or this cold, and it doesn't appear to be going anywhere. And winter is coming. You look cold, boys. It is a bit nippy. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. <laughs> That's cold. Winter is coming. Mm-hmm. I'm cold. It's cold and it's wet. Winter is coming. You're crying because you're cold. You're a long way from home. Winter is coming. I imagine you might be rather cold. And winter is coming. Oh, that's all right. I'm fine. You're not. You're freezing. I love doing that intro. <laughs> Russ is the only guest I have an intro for. Maybe I should do something from the Crimmies or for the Crimmies, but it's not quite, it was just right there, just low hanging fruit. Winter is coming. It was all right there. I didn't have to do much at all, except put a little kind of cold, wintry, windy atmosphere in the background, a little sonic bed layer beneath. Other than that, it was all pre-made right off the shelf. How is everybody? Uh, it is Friday the 28th, and welcome to another edition of the Friday Forecast. And being that this is the last Friday of the month, we are visited by Russ Winter of winterwatch.net. And boy, do we have a show planned for you today. Russ has done immaculate, well, Russ and his team have done immaculate research on a number of individuals who for all intents and purposes, resemble what are called turtles on the fence post. And that was a phrase that was coined by Aldous Huxley. And the whole idea behind turtles on the fence post are if you see somebody and you wonder how they got to that position in life and that they resemble turtles on the fence post, it's a pretty good chance that somebody put them there. So we've got a number of uh, characters that we're going to uh, check out today as turtles on the fence post. Uh, right at the top uh, of my head, those include John Kerry, uh, Fidelito, also known as Justin Trudeau, uh, David Cameron, very interesting character, David Cameron, George Bush and Barack Obama. So we got five turtles on the fence post that we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, you can always go to winterwatch.net. You saw it right there at the beginning with the intro to find out more about Russ's website. He updates it almost daily. Fresh content, uh, impeccably researched, 
and you'll, uh, your knowledge base will grow exponentially if you are a frequent reader of his blog. So let's talk about your psycho-emotional body knowledge base here for just a minute. And that is my cue to talk about True Hem Science. And True Hem Science is uh, the sponsor of the show. Uh, we talk about it at the beginning of either uh, this broadcast or my daily broadcast. And there's a reason why uh, it is a sponsor of the show because my friend Chris creates really, really good hemp products. I uh, get nothing but positive feedback uh, from what Chris does on the product side. And on the service side, um, he's equally praised for his ability to answer your questions about anything that you purchase from him as it relates to CBD products. I had my moon dust today and I can feel it. I can feel it. I'm, I'm in sync with the rhythms of the show today. Uh, the moon dust has become a very popular item on uh, Chris's website and in his business. And we eagerly await the return of the gummies, which, uh, I love, they're great, they're fantastic for sleep. So if you spend $100 at truemscience.com backslash rep backslash 23, you're gonna get free product. You spend 150, you get free shipping. All you gotta do is put in 15MINS, 15MINS, that's the code when you check out. And hopefully uh, we can arrange a show next week live from the Truem Science World Headquarters in Austin. That would be really cool. And bring Chris on. And I think uh, I think Danny, Danny Katz is gonna be with me next Friday. Really looking forward to that. Danny's, Danny's a genius. She's fearless, fearless genius. All right, so without any delay, let's, uh, let's bring Russ on here. Oh, by the way, shout out to Chataria. Um, always glad you're here. Shout out to the mods, Tom, and uh, Ryan and Steve, always doing stellar work inside the chat room. All right, let's bring on the man himself, Mr. Russ Winter. There he is. Hello. Howdy. How did you, Texas? Did you do the winter is coming deal yet? Oh yeah, man. Oh, oh absolutely. Okay. Well, you, you get to watch it on the replay. Um, it's yeah. the only. You're the only person I have a dedicated intro for. So, <laughs> but it was, but it was easy, right? I mean, it was pretty yeah, much, pretty much ready made. Just handed it to you on a silver platter. That's it. The only thing I needed to do at the end was the dun 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 dun, right, and add that. And, punch the, you know, Russ Winter, winterwatch.net. So um, welcome back, Russ. Always great to have yep. you here last Friday of the month. And uh, you and I were talking a little bit uh, prior to the show, and we are going to be talking about turtles on the fence post. For people that are not familiar with the term, do you want to break that down a little bit? Well, it's a, it's a term I, I coined for the unexpected appearances of sort of these sketchy people that we follow a lot. You know, you kind of wonder how does a certain person get to the place that they're at? And 
power or places of influence. And there's an old uh, saying, it's sort of a Midwestern cliche saying, saying says, how, how did that, you're, you're driving down the road and somebody looks at the fence post and you say, how did that turtle get on the fence post? The answer is somebody put it there. Right. And so that's, that's the idea of these individuals we're going to talk about were put where they were. And we're going to go into their very strange, odd, bizarre backgrounds and a, lot, and a lot of people watching this are going to be incredulous, but I just say, open up your mind, uh, trust your eyes, trust your instincts a little bit, and, and don't fall back into immediately incredulity. Uh, a, a fallacious argument, one common fallacious argument when you're arguing against a point that somebody makes is incredulity. That's not an argument. Right. It's, not a, it's, a, it's our logical fallacy is, is incredulity. Right, right. I mean, it's it's all it's almost like a a failsafe of uh, the mind in some ways uh, to use a, a phrase like that because it stops a person from actually looking at what you're talking about and asking questions, like real questions about is this possible? Because they may not want to deal with the answer. So incredulity is one of those things that you know it's the log in the road. To understanding and there's right. all kind there's all kinds of logs in the road to understanding like recently with kanye west the biggest log in the road is to call him an anti-semite right and all you really have to do is ask some very logical questions about what he's talking about and why certain people won't have them on their platforms right so we have these catchphrases that are they're almost like they're implanted into our psyches to keep us from getting to some semblance of the truth and asking questions that are pertinent to the, to the conversation. So yes, you to keep people, it's to be people boxed out or boxed in. Right. And you've asked some really big questions about some of these characters and um, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get into it. What, before we do, what's really interesting now is how the, 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 the psychographic profiles of the turtles on the fence posts have changed. Right. When, when you look at somebody like Carrie or you look at somebody like uh, David Cameron, like they fit a type. Right. They kind of look somewhat stately. They look good in a suit. Right. Now, the turtles on the fence post are Richard Levine. Right. That's a turtle on the fence post. But it's a weird turtle. Right. It's like it's like a mutant turtle. So this they're, they're still getting there. But it's like, OK, the common standard variety which passes for um, the establishment. Oh, but we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to give you We're going to go with freaks. Yeah, we're going we're, we're to freak you out. Yeah, they kind of started do. I think they started doing a little of that with people like Obama. As we'll I think Obama is the gateway. He's the yeah. gateway turtle from Mars, right? That's, that's Obama. And, uh, and, and since Obama, it's just become more and more blatant. And anyway, that's a whole other discussion about the show. Let's get into this. Let's go to your website. And uh, let's talk about. Yeah, let's start out with Fidel Castro. And the name of the article is, was Fidel Castro Justin Trudeau's daddy? Now, I, I think a lot of people have kind of noticed the strong resemblance of Fidel Castro and J Justin Trudeau. So this one's been out there for a while. It's kind of entered into the uh, conspiracy uh, realms to some degree. I think most people have just dismissed it as incredulity. And there's been some debunkers that have shown up that have, imparted some totally 
erroneous information, which I'll get into here. Uh, the, the starting point is that uh, is the birth date of Justin Trudeau on December the 25th, 1971. So just kind of mark that date in your mind. Uh, now, the, the two primary reasons are from the, are the requirement that Justin Trudeau would have had to have been conceived in early spring of 1971, at, you know, given his birth date. Now, the debunkers will tell you, they will acknowledge that the Trudeaus, Margaret Trudeau, uh, Pierre Trudeau, and Fidel Castro were buddies and, and kind of friends and would socialize and get together and, and hang out. Uh, Fidel Castro was very rarely left Cuba, and he showed up in, for Pierre Trudeau's uh, funeral. So there's clearly a, a tie going on there. So but where the where the debunkers break down, first of all, let's take a look at some of the pictures on the screen. Yep. You should be able to see them. This one is really telling. Now, let this, there's a collection of them left to right. Yeah, Pierre Trudeau, Joseph, Justin Trudeau, Fidel Castro. I mean, look at that. This is dead. I'm sorry, just even from looking at the look, pictures. Look, look at these. Look at these two. Yeah. There's like four rows of them. The expressions are the same. Justin Trudeau sort of, sort of has the same kind of kinky hair. You know, it's kind of a little bit, I'd say a little bit Latino looking to me. He, he does. He has that kind of swarthy uh, Latino um, gene pool. You know, you know, um, Castro looks like the American actor Eli Wallach right here. <laughs> Doesn't he? Right. Like, Maybe like, that's you, another rabbit hole. I don't know. <laughs> that, that, that could be another rabbit hole. We don't want to get into too many rabbit holes today. So uh, the one, debunkers say that the, they dismiss the theory and move on by saying that Trudeau didn't meet the Trudeaus didn't meet Castro in Cuba, in Cuba is what they say, until 1976 right. when Justin was four years old. So they use that to dismiss this whole theory. So let's just go down the page. Here's the rest of the story. You can see how cozy Mar Margaret Trudeau is with Fidel in the one picture. There's three of them. Yeah. He's, she's got, now notice she's got his her hand wrapped all the way around on his shoulder. This guy's a head of state, a communist head of state and a dictator. And Mark Trudeau feels that she can wrap her arm all the way around here and touch him on the chest. Right. I mean, the, Very the, fra the, the framing of the picture, like if you're looking at the sort of the, the symbology um, or the, the, the body language of the framing of the picture, you would assume that these two are a couple, right? If you didn't know any different. Like somebody just showed us. Well, and look at the difference of the age between Pierre Trudeau and Margaret. There's th they're 30 years apart. So Pierre doesn't have a particular problem with them being friendly because he knows what's really going on here. So, so a little background on, on Margaret. She's just kind of a wild child. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I don't know why, she's kind of bipolar. She was actually diagnosed and sort of led a movement later uh, for bipolar people later in life. Did serve a foundation, and, and she's from the the Sinclair or the Sinclair yep. family, right? Which, which, when you go far enough back, these are the, the one of the Knights Templar families, and theoretically uh, responsible for the creation 
of uh, Freemasonry in Scotland, right? Yeah, so I mean, there you go. Freemasonry. You have a very connected family and just pluck this 18-year-old girl, really, and get him get her hooked up with Pierre Trudeau. Now, they, their marriage didn't last very long because she was just too wild. And he was a wild man, too. Basically, what they were, swingers. I have heard that Trudeau was primar- primarily gay. That, okay. that, was, that was his main... Uh, that was, that was his main course. Now he might have been he might have been by and swung a little bit, but that's one of the reasons why. And it's interesting. Well, then she doesn't she have children with other men as well because he has siblings, and the whole sibling uh, Trudeau thing is another interesting story. In fact, he's even with one of the siblings on a ski trip, and that sibling dies uh, while they're out together. That's a whole other story. But when you look at the siblings, they don't really look like Justin Trudeau. Maybe some minor resemblance. But um, yeah, Margaret's a wild child. I mean, she's, you get into this um, pretty explicitly. Let's talk about this uh, Caribbean trust here in 71. Okay, so they go to, uh, they get married in 71. It's well established that the couple traveled several times to Cuba. And uh, under the Caribbean sun, both are evidently charmed by Fidel, as recounted in John English's book, Just Watch Me, The Life of Pierre Trudeau. So for Fidel Castro to impregnate Margaret, they would have had to rendezvous in early 19, spring of 1971, about eight, nine months before Trudeau's Christmas Day birth. Well, it turns out that Trudeau's were in the Caribbean in April 1971, during which time they went to, quote unquote, an unidentified nearby island. They asked the media for complete privacy. The news clip below, you can see the news clip that I got in my article, is published in the Ottawa Journal on April the 13th, 1971. It's, now it says... Prime Minister Trudeau and his wife left here Monday by chartered plane on a quick side trip to a quote-unquote unidentified nearby island. They arrived here Thursday on a brief second honeymoon and have reportedly been staying at a private residence on the island's posh west coast. Heavy security measures have been in effect since their arrival, and the local press was asked to respect the the newlyweds' desire for privacy. So... They were there. They left Barbados and Lord knows where they rendezvoused with Fidel. But I think what happened is that Pierre goes, hey, would you like to go meet my friend Fidel Castro? Mm -hmm. Yep. And maybe have a little fun with him. Right. Exactly. And it sounds like she was uh, more than more than game for the, uh, the and, and then basically at one point Trudeau took a side trip to Trinidad while Mar- Margaret stayed alone in, in T- Tobago. So at some point in there, Fidel Castro did the impregnation. So this idea that they never met, there's no way that they could have had contact. You got to going to have to explain why the resemblance is so strong. And the opportunity was there in April, 1971 to impregnate her and the, with the uh, Fidelito, bring right. bring on Fidelito, and you know what kind of arrangement would a fifty-three year old man have with a bipolar flower child of twenty-three years old? Right, not well, your traditional. That's your traditional arrangement, you know. No, it? no, it brings brings in the whole question. 
you know, not just having like this, you know, woman who apparently has an insatiable sexual appetite, but um, you know, like conscious breeding, like conscious breeding, she comes from a bloodline and her bloodline is going to connect with, you know, Castro's bloodline, Castro being the, you know, the so-called leader of the communist West, right? So there could be some real uh, forethought in planning around this whole thing, right? And maybe this was, you know, part of the plan to begin with, right? Once he discovered, and even the discovery story, you know, maybe the discovery story is just a story. Maybe it was arranged. Maybe he was going to go to that island. He was going to meet this young woman because of her background and her bloodline. And the next thing you know, they're off and running. So here she is in Studio 54, shaking her ass. Yeah, this is why she's married. She's had an affair with uh, Ted Kennedy. She had an affair with Ronnie Woods, the Rolling Stone, according to Keith Richards' autobiography. Uh, she smuggled drugs in the prime minister's luggage and made scantily clad appearances at Studio 51. Had a clear history of sneaking off to party and all that came out with that lifestyle. But not with Fidel? Really? That's the question I ask. <laughs> right, exactly. And Castro himself, according to AIDS, had an incredible sexual appetite. It's been reported that he would sleep with at least two different women per day and would send his bodyguards out to find the most beautiful ones for his pleasure. Sounds like Bill Clinton in Arkansas. As pointed out in a 2014 Vice article, there's a local custom in Cuba in, in which any woman who doesn't know who the father of a child is calls, calls it Fidelito or little Fidel. Mm -hmm. And what about Pierre Trudeau? Pierre often invited two girlfriends to the same event. Alan Gottlieb, his ambassador to Washington, complained that at one dinner he host, hosted for Trudeau because he had three girlfriends there. At 24 sec, uh, Sussex, he carried on downstairs, even though Margaret, from who he's officially separated, was still in the residence up, upstairs. Uh, right. So that, in other words, they're just kind of, I, maybe your theory is, is absolutely right. This is, might have just been totally conceived and planned for the big beginning. Yeah. So either that it's, or you got, some hypersex, like you got some hypersexuals that were kind of engaging and sort of to, to most people, I mean, to most people's sensibilities, very odd, bizarre behavior, which involved, ended up with him being impregnated. And not only did, was he, she, she impregnated with Fidel's child, but the, this, this Pierre, this Justin Trudeau, who's a total moron, has risen to the top of the political heap in Canada. Right. I remember when he assumed office and a lot of Canadians were actually, um, they, were, they were proud of that moment and they were hopeful that Trudeau would be able to uh, kind of recapture, you know, Canada's golden age during that period because that's, that's the time when Pierre Trudeau and Margaret Trudeau were palling around. That's when John and Yoko were hanging out in Canada and doing their, their bedding. Right. So, you know, Canada at that time was known for its kind of cool, liberal, chic tendencies. Um, and there was a little bit of glitterati surrounding this couple. Right. So F Fidelito was thought to be an extension of that. And while Canada, I wouldn't say that the Canadians would view that as a golden age. I'm clearly, 
they were happy. Like they were a happy country. Even had a baseball team in Montreal at that time. So when he arrived, it was it was met with um, positivity and celebration. And look where this thing is now. And they, they can't get rid of him. He's like he's like uh, he's like herpes now. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's awful. He really yeah. is. Yeah. Awful human being. One of the one of the worst. Okay, let's go on to uh, John we, Kerry. Before we go, I got a little trivia about Fidel Castro. Uh, one of the things that Fidel Castro would do is he would sneak out of Cuba and he would dress up like a rabbi and he would attend New York Yankee games as a rabbi <laughs> because he loved baseball so much. Probably had so, some women lined up too. No, no doubt. Um, all right. So we're going to get into Carrie. Carrie's really interesting um, in terms of the, of the lineage stuff. I mean, this is, this is right up there with Miles Mathis territory as far as um, getting into the family tree and, and uh, making some really salient um, uh, arguments that. Um, well, that it's, he, this one's easy. Should... This, this is easy. But what John Kerry did throughout his political career is portrayed himself as a son of a Boston Brahmin mother and a father who was supposedly just a simple Irish Catholic man on the street. So he said, you know, he, the Kerry name is from Ireland, obviously. Right. Uh, and he just portrayed himself as an Irish guy, which kind of works for Massachusetts politics for, yep. you know, served him well. But what happened is during the, his presidential campaign, some, what typically happens is some uh, uh, people dig into the pedigree a little bit, do the right. family tree. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't too tough because where the story really gets interesting is with Carrie's grand grandparents, most specifically his Brahmin's mother's side, the Forbes family. Now, the history of the maternal great-grandfather, Francis Forbes, is largely scrubbed and highly dis disingenuous. For example, he's often cited, quote-unquote, as a China merchant. In actuality, he was an opium dealer operating in China. This is the fountainhead of the Forbes wealth. And so I, I have a follow-up article. I, I actually think the opium trade in China and the people involved in that is the fountainhead of a lot of the crime syndicate that is operating today. Yeah, that I mean... It, it kind of stems yeah. from that. Yeah, I mean, clearly, it's a huge thing. And they, they make a ton of money off of it. So it sets the foundation for vice as uh, a, a high-value high economic value, not a high moral value, but a high economic value trade. And big money. Trafficking, huge, right? So vice becomes really, really big. And in the Boston area, which is what we're talking about, it's not just what's going on there with Ford, but you also have the Kennedy story, which is also rooted in, in vice and dealing with the right. Bronf, dealing with the Bronfmans. And, and Franklin D. Roosevelt, has, uh, his family, Delano, his middle name, which was a maternal name, they were involved in the China trade. Right, right. So one of, the, one of these days, we should actually do a show on the Boston Brahmins because their influence is felt to this day. Katanji Jackson Brown, who is the new Supreme Court justice, is married to... Um, a very close uh, descendant of Oliver Wendell Holmes. 
and the Holmes family, of course, being a, a Brahmin family from Boston. One of these days, we're going to do a show on them. So let's get back into uh, Forbes here in this whole China thing. Okay, so Francis Blackwell Forbes, 1839-1908, is, is cited in Wikipedia as an expert on Chinese seed-producing plants. <laughs> right. And he lived in China for 25 years, 1857-1882. Well, that's, that's when the Brahmins and the Americans in particular kind of started penetrating the opium market and wrestling a little bit with the British, because the British had pretty much gotten established there. Right. And then the uh, career and honors section of his biography states that this criminal received awards for his lifetime works with, quote, unquote, poppies. <laughs> <laughs> so Kerry enjoyed a certain status and entry into Yale, including, as we were talking about before we came on the air, skull and bones. Right, right. He's a skull and boner. Right. But then the... The uh, paternal side is very interesting. The so-called carry and the story is developed on that. That is this total subterfuge. And so I say that Carey enjoyed a certain status and entry into Yale because his father, Richard Carey, married well. Or perhaps, as you will see, it was the other way around. Now let's look at the paternal side. His paternal grandfather was born Fritz Kohn, K-O-H-N, right. the son of a Jewish brewmeister in Benish, Moravia, which is near Brno in Moravia, not too, not, that's not, Brno is not too far from Vienna, but it's in present day Czech Republic. Carrie's paternal grandmother, Ida Lowe, hailed from a very well known and large Jewish family in Brno, Moravia. The Lowe clan are descendants of the famous Kabbalist and Talmudist Rabbi Judah Lowe, AKA Lowe. In 1518-1609, the Mariel of Prague and the creator of the Golem story. Wow. History tells us that Rabbi Lowell, using sorcerer-like magic, created this monstrous and gigantic golem from the muddy banks of the Vitlava River in Prague as a boogeyman to intimidate and scare the heck out of the city's Gentiles. The rabbi's hoax worked, and this made Lowell a highly sought-after mystic and black musician, a fascinating figure, and so he's he's a legendary fi uh, figure. Yeah, the Frankenstein and, the Frankenstein story is based on the Golem, right? Mm -hmm. Now there's a freakish and rather ridiculous statue of Rabbi Lowell. I'm, I'm I'm digressing a little bit to just to kind of give you the background of these people. Right, stands outside the municipal hall in Prague. I have a picture of it. it depicts an octopus draped from his neck. And the resemblance to John Kerry is stark. If you if you could see the face, it's John Kerry's frigging face. Yeah, I can kind of see it from here. Yeah, it was erected in 1910 by the powerful Jewish community at the time in Prague. Uh, now, so that's just the starting point. But to my eyes, having both Judah Lowe and Francis Forbes in your bloodline is more than a mere curiosity. But then it goes on, so... He he did fess up. They asked him when his Irish jig was up, and they finally got confronted about his Irish jig. Right. He dismissed the findings as obscure ancestry. He did fess up to having an ancestor from quote unquote Austria, but back in the depths of history. But in reality, his paternal grandparents were from Austria, or more exactly, Moravia. Yep. So, so you get into this whole thing around the accent too, 
which I, I get think into the is... whole squirrely story. So according to an archive for Jewish genealogy, uh, the grand Carrie's grandfather Fritz Cohn and his and Fritz's brother Otto Cohn converted to Roman Catholicism in Vienna in 1901. And then as part of their family reinvention, they simply picked the name Carrie off of a map of Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. It's 1901. We're going to become Irish Catholics. Oh, here we go. Oh, yeah, we like that one. <laughs> so in 1905, Fritz Cohen and his wife Ida moved to America. After a few years, they situated in Boston, where in 1915, they had a son, the future father of John F. Carey, Richard Carey. Richard had good positions within the U.S. government's Foreign Service Division and a keen interest in politics throughout all of his life. And at the, as we wrap this up, I'm going to throw a bombshell about this guy. So for sake of discussion of this outlandish Irish claim, we can presume that Carey's father grew up with a standard uh, Boston accent because he was born in the United States. So he's not going to have a German accent from Brno, right? Right, right. But his However, Grandfather Fred, or a.k.a. Fritz, didn't immigrate from Central Europe to the U.S. until he was 32 years old, and his wife Ida was 28. So neither one could pass themselves off as Irish Catholic. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, I, I discuss how the language can change. I have a, grand, I have a grandmother that was native tongue, was Norwegian. And, uh, only, I mean, only a moron that could ever confuse her accent Irish. real quick before we move on uh, the father automatically becomes a turtle on the fence post right he immediately gets good positions in the u.s government foreign Ser foreign service division right like how does that happen when you have a family who's newly immigrated to the united states you know you would think that their son would be i don't know a shoemaker or a butcher or whatever right oh no he goes right into foreign service so there's all there's a history of uh, turtles on the fence posts in the family, right? So so despite the fact that uh, so that Fred, this is Fritz. So he had, he was Fred. actually he was actually a shoemaker, right? Yeah, shoe, shoe business. Shoe. I guess it was yeah. shoe retailer or wholesaler or something. So he, so he committed suicide in 1921. So Richard would certainly not be old enough to know that his was certainly old enough to know that his dad didn't have a Boston Irish accent. Because, see, John Kerry is claiming that his dad never told him about any of this stuff. <laughs> so even, like, okay, so there's so many holes in these stories. Even the suicide story comes under some scrutiny. But did, did he really commit suicide? Or No idea. No or did, idea. He, did he cross a line and somebody said, dude, you're out of line? But, and, but, I mean, you could argue that John Kerry didn't know his grandfather. Okay, yeah, you didn't know Fred, Fritz. Right. right we get that because he died a long time ago. Yeah. But his grandmother, Ida, <laughs> Ida Lowe, until 1960, he was until 1960. John Kerry was born in 1953. So let and, and grandma just lived there in the same community, very close he, by. He was 17 years old, right? Yeah. So unless right. grandmother was hidden in the attic, there's zero chance that Carrie would have thought she was an Irish woman. She because she came to America, and she's 28, so she would have spoken with a German accent her whole life come right. on yeah uh-huh you know my uh -huh. grandmother they came, she came when she was like eight from norway yeah and you could always pick up her accent you know well, she, my, spoke my, english. she, yeah. she spoke good english but she always had this interesting 
Norwegian accent. Right. Well, my grandmother was born in Louisiana and she lived most of her life in California. You could still hear uh, the shades of that Louisiana accent in her voice. Same with, my, same with my dad, born in Texas and moved to California, 13 yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, this this whole idea of white lies and acting surprised and put upon when revelations came about, as John Kerry did, I just think is a very bad characteristic. Now, the the... Now, some people may not say say that, you know, the sins of your fathers or your, your background or whatever, but why just lie about it? Why just make up big stories? Yeah, well, I mean, once you join Skull and Bones, I think lying uh, just becomes a part of your everyday pathology. Right. So Richard Carey, uh, John Carey's father, he was not a neocon, so let's, let's let's put that part straight. But he was a multilateralist or and a very pro UN globalist, and he and very recent released classified documents reveal that he was in the thick of transferring heavy water for Israel's nuclear program. There's the document. Take a look at that. You see it on, down the I page? Do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It says right here, please note Mr. Kerry's injunction to keep the knowledge of this transaction strictly on a need-to-know basis in view of the political sensitivity of this subject in Norway. Uh, the prior paragraph says, attached for your information is a letter from Mr. Kerry, first secretary of embassy at Oslo, enclosing a copy of a secret agreement covering the sale of heavy water to Israel by Norway. So there you go. I mean, there's your, there's your smoking gun right there's there. There's your Irish Catholic guy working in the embassy in uh, Norway. Yeah, he's an <laughs> on behalf of Israeli interests. <laughs> basically, he's he's a he's an arms dealer, is what he is. So John Kerry, I mean, you know, he's he's a turtle on the fence post. His pedigree, yeah. his his storytelling, his background, his father's background, the, the background of his mother's family is just right. perfect uh, turtle material. Right. And that really brings into question, uh, we'll go back to your site in a second, that really brings into question his story of being captured in Vietnam. You know, like, did right. that really happen the way they said it did? You know, I mean... Well, a lot of guys came forward and said that he was... Uh, bullshitting right people yeah. came forward yeah i mean it, it became pretty clear that he was going to use that as a political plank and platform you know that would be almost like the foundation for his community organizing was this his capture um, during the vietnam war and speaking out against the war um, but there's no real proof or evidence that it happened really the way they said it happened so everything when you look at somebody's background like that uh, everything comes into question Everything about their story comes into question. And then, of course, uh, he went on to marry Teresa Hines, who, right. is, who is the heiress of the, you know, the Hines ketchup and all these various condiment fortunes, right? Um, that whole thing is weird, too. I mean, I remember when he trotted her out during the campaign, I was like, okay, here she is. I'm actually really married to her. Right? It was like, okay. I mean, the story was that he was very good friends with Senator Hines, and when Senator Hines died in kind of a mysterious plane crash, right? Like another rabbit hole we could go into, but but uh, you know, they were socially familiar with each other, 
I don't, you know, I suppose it's kind of natural. I don't see that as too unusual. The Sefer just has this turtle on the defense post feel to it in terms of advancing carries, you know, financially, politically, making sure that he was a turtle on the fence post. Now, he eventually got beat by George W. Bush, so they didn't apparently didn't think that highly enough of him to make him president of the United States. Well, he, he, he was chosen to take a dive, right? Yeah. He was, he was suddenly listened to Bush's Ali in that election. He had, and, he and, for, had, and for people that aren't familiar with that election since it's 20 years ago, uh, 22 years ago, that was the Florida chaff election. No, that was the prior one with Al Gore. Oh, Al Gore. Okay. But right. Kerry's election was very close also. Kerry, from what I understand, Kerry actually won the election. And there was all kinds of voter impropriety in places like Ohio and Indiana. Like I followed that. I followed that when it was happening. And it's like, you know, the, the, these guys chose Kerry because both he and Bush were Skull and Bones brothers. And when you look at the primary run up, um, the guy who wound up becoming the chairman of the Democratic National Party was, you know, the, the, the odds on favorite. People love that. I always forget his name. But uh, when, when they went to, what is it, Des Moines, where they have the, uh, the second primary after New Hampshire, and they caught him with that crazy laugh and they played the laugh over and over and over again. Right. That like completely torpedoed. Um, what's his name? Dean, I think Howard Dean. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Howard Dean was the odds on favorite. Like, and right. Carrie, Carrie was way behind in the polls. I mean, way behind. And af after that primary, Carrie mysteriously began to rise, much like much like Joe Biden during the last election, who was way behind everybody else. So Kerry all of a sudden gets the turtle on the fence post moment for running for president. And the common, the common, the common theme is the relationship between George Bush and Skull and Bones. So he was chosen to lose that election because they were going to run election improprieties and he would just roll over like a dog. And there's a famous uh, scene of uh, who's who's the TV journalist? Well, it's Tim Russer. Tim Russer. Yeah, yeah, Tim Russer asked him about the asked both of them actually separately about Skull I, and Bones. I can and even he said, find well, it's, that. A, it's a sec it's a secret. I can't tell you. And he, with a totally straight face. Let's find I mean, it. I, 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 could, I could play it right now. Oh yeah, good. Yeah, you got that up there. Man, I, well, I, I can find it really, really quickly. So um, he asked both John Kerry and you're a good George producer. Bush. So you're a good, you're a good producer, Robert. <laughs> I, I, I live on the fly. Give me one second here. All right, hold on. That's a whole other, give me one second here. Uh, Wow, it should be really accessible. Um, and let me see one other thing here. It, YouTube is pro probably deep sixed at some Well, place. some of this stuff is hard to find now. Um, here we go. I'll try to I'll try to move ahead a little bit. It's in the same presser with. Uh, here we go. This is it right here. By the way, Tim Russer dies not long after these interviews. 
Yeah, series. I have an article on him too, on him too. I think he was assessed. He was a hit. All right, so here we go. This is him talking. He was about too inquisitive. Him. Yeah, he was way too inquisitive. Here we go. The secret society. It's so secret we can't talk about it. What does that mean for America? The conspiracy theorists are going to go. I'm on. sure they are. I don't know. I haven't seen the record. number three two two. First of all, he's not the nominee, and uh, but uh, look, I look for. Are you prepared to lose? No, I'm not going to lose. You both were members of Spell and Bones, a secret society at Yale. What does that tell us? Uh, not much, because it's a secret. <laughs> Is there a secret handshake? Is there a secret code? I wish there were something secret I could manifest. 322, a secret number? Uh, there are all kinds of secrets, Tim, but one thing is not a secret. I disagree with this president's direction that he's taking the country. We can do a better job, and I intend to do it. And we'll be watching Be Safe on the Campaign Trail. John Kerry, thanks yes, for joining us. There, there you go. go. Okay. Anyway, there you go. Asked him the same question. Uh, and Kerry answered it with a bit more aplomb than Bush did. Uh, because Bush is kind yeah, of... Yeah, Bush really came, seemed to kind of slink up, up under under a rock on his, his answer. Yeah, he's kind of... The, he's the village. But that's why Kerry ran. Because he was going to take the fall and just walk away. That was the plan. Yeah. And and the whole the whole idea behind Skull and Bones is that it doesn't produce people specifically on one side of the ideological ledger sheet than the other. It produces both. And Skull and Bones is about power. And it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. It's the fulfillment of power. And that's what Skull and Bones is all about. So um, there you go. So, okay, let's do the deep dive into Cameron because this is really a good follow-up on Kerry. Did you have did you have the bombshell that you're gonna you're gonna bring up at the end of Carrie or did we talk about it? No, that's good. That's it. Just okay. the fact that he's just the bombshell was is his dad involved with the uh, heavy water project with his. Literally, that's literally a bombshell. Yeah. All right. What a quinky dink. So here we go. The Cameron rabbit hole. Cameron is a very interesting name. When you know you really boil it down and see some of the other characters named Cameron, so let's get going here. Okay, so he's he, he once again he prefers to be coy about his family tree, uh, turtle on the post made men, mm -hmm. but he had some highly influential banksters as his great great grandparents. Yeah, and uh, he's an he, you know David Cameron is a vowed Zionist. But he acted surprised when it was revealed that his ancestors were a high-powered German-Jewish banker on the maternal side and a Scottish opium Freemason bankster on the paternal side. So now we're connecting opium, Scotland, uh, and St. Clair, St. Clair, right, uh, with the Scottish Freemasonry. Yeah, or the same business that, uh, right. uh, that Carrie's maternal side was involved in. Right. Yep. This crime syndicate that's involved with this opium and and banksterism because the bank the banking was a big part of that. Yeah. The, uh, the the Japanese story at the end is like really fascinating. Let's keep going here. So so anyway, he fe he feigned ignorance in, is particularly ludicrous given that in the United States the UK's highly structured caste systems one's passport into high society clubs requires papers of pedigree similar to those of champion line horses and dogs. So he, you know, again, he's d denying the fact that he knows anything about his, not that far distant ancestors. 
Right. They have to play dumb. So his great-great-grandfather, Emil Levita, if I pronounce that right, L-E-V-I-T-A. Yeah, looks like Levita. Mm -hmm. Levita obtained British citizenship in 1871. He was the director of the Chartered Bank of India, Australia, and China, which became Standard Chartered Bank, which is one of the big banks in the world. Right. The family hailed from Frankfurt and the environment cesspool, namely Mance in Rhineland-Palatine, and a generation earlier from Bad Orban, Hesse, Germany. Now, all those places I mentioned, I believe, are the center cesspool of the Sabbatean Frankism. Oh, oh Frank Frankfurt, without a doubt, right? I mean, even and the, the and the surrounding areas. Right. Yeah, Leo Frank. Are you Leo Frank? And you have Frankfurt, uh, and I've been to Frankfurt. Uh, yeah, Jacob, Jacob Frank. Jacob so, Frank. So any, but anyway, I, I, I Jacob think Frank, that's, Frank. I think that's the, I think where this is where a lot of this font, the font of a lot of these people comes from. That's where the rocket, the Rothschilds operated, and they would pluck mm-hmm. people out of the Sabbatean movement. Now, for people who don't know what we're talking about, there, I don't know the date, but we did a very, the very first uh, show we ever did was on this subject of Sabbatean Frankism. Right. Yep. Yeah. And if you want to do your homework, go back and listen to that because that'll. I'll, I'll find it. I'll, I'll I'll leave a link in the uh, comments in the uh, show page so people can go find it. Right. So, but it was Cameron's great grandfather Arthur Levetta, 1865 to 1910, that deserves special attention. L. G. Pine, the editor of Burke's Peerage, wrote that Arthur wrote specifically about Arthur in this old century-old peerage. Is a prime example of Jewish intermarriage with aristocracy. The Jews have made themselves so closely connected with the British peerage that the two classes are unlikely to suffer loss, which is not mutual. Arthur married Stephanie Cooper, who is described by one source as a cousin of the royal family. Incredibly, not one, but two of Cameron's great-grandfathers were involved in City of War City of London London, war finance. That's very important to notice the type of finance that they're involved in. The war business. Right. And are mentioned prominently alongside both the London and Paris houses of Rothschild and Jacob Schiff. The other thing, too, to make note, the city of London, right, that is, like, that's explicit. That's exclusive. It's not England. It's not the UK. It's the city of London which is an entity unto itself. Yeah, the sort of hybrid uh, uh, marriage of these Jewish and British interests in running the empire and the, and the, the business. Yeah, so, his God, so, so, that, so David Cameron really represents what, that phenomena. And his Scottish great-grandfather, Sir Ewan Cameron, 1841 to 1908, was top of the heat in the city of London bankster scene, serving as chairman of HSBC, big bank, big important bank then, and then and now has been a central kingpin of drug and other money laundering. Yep. And, you know, in fact, they got slapped with a multi-billion dollar fine. Uh, that you know, they've been doing this stuff ever since. I have an article: U.S. international bankers received mere wrist slap for laundering narco drug money. That's HSBC. This is a really fascinating story about this Takashi Korikio uh, character. Right. So both of these guys, both of his 
ancestors, let's just refer to them as an ancestor. One was a great, great grandfather. One was a great grandfather served as, so, so, so this Japanese Taseki Koriki served as governor of the central bank, prime minister, and seven times as finance minister rolled into London. His goal was to drum up financing for a war with Russia, the Russo-Japanese war in 1904, 1905, lasted over a little over a year. The details of the movers and shakers of this war profiteering came courtesy of the Rothschild archives. So the information I'm about to give you came from the, arch- the Rothschild archives. So it's in their, it's in their own, their own, own records. Yeah. yeah. And, and back in those days, these people would, would take, would have diaries, they would have letters. And so the deep scholars can go and kind of research this. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it seems like a real obscure topic, but there's a lot of revelations. Oh, here it's too. fascinating here. It's like an octopus network. Yeah. So to, to Takahashi had gotten wind that, J, that German Jew Jacob Schiff of Kuhn Loeb was interested in bankrolling the war with, with a consortium of Pears Bank and Hong Kong Shanghai Bank. Schiff's motivation for agreeing to underwrite half of Japan's war bonds was a desire to help Russian Jews. According to the archives, during 1904, great-great-grandpa Ewan Cameron and other leading London Anglo-Jewish financiers, including Lord Revelstoke of Baring Brothers, a second David Cameron great-grandpa, author Arthur Francis Lavetta, William A. Cook of Panmure, Sir Marcus Samuel, of Samuel and Samuel Company, Royal Dutch Shell, Sir Carl Meyer, and Otto Kahn. Notice the names. Right. Took part in the negotiations with this war minister for selling war bonds to finance the war effort. Uh, Takahashi recorded in his English language diary, quote, Mr. Shad came to me afternoon on my request we talked about the form of treasury bill and of the means of making good feelings of Cameron and Rothschild Cameron and Rothschild mentioned specifically and on April the 13th he wrote met with both Rothschilds Nathan and Alfred at their office so By introduction. The way, I, I don't know if you noticed this but April 13th is the same day that supposedly Trudeau and Margaret Trudeau and Castro met. <laughs> did, did you catch that? Same day. No, I don't I don't notice that kind of things, but I know you do because you're kind of looking at sort of other aspects of this, right? Uh, it's, it's a mere coincidence, really. <laughs> Takahashi wrote that he'd met with a man named H.R. Beaton, who recommended that he listed the help of Sir Ernest Castle, banker of the king, along with Lord Revistol and Rothschild, one of the three most prominent financiers of London. Takashaki reported Benton as saying, quote, the Jews are first-rate financiers, and Castle is most influential in London. He can invite Rothschild as well as Morgan and so on. Bring out the big loan so as to make Anglo-American concern. So they gave wow. $82 million <laughs> in Japanese war bonds. Almost half the cost of the war were raised by these small clique of men centered around the Rothschilds and uh, Cameron's ancestors. Uh, so in September, I guess Takashi went to uh, Paris. He was, he was looking for more money and they set him up there. Yeah, he traveled to Paris to talk with French financiers. Okay. 
with a letter of introduction from Lord Rothschilds and Alfred visited their par Paris cousins who agreed to participate in a Jap Japanese bond issuance to allow them to reorganize the wartime debts. If the if the if the London branch of the family also took part, here great grandpa Arthur Levettet, Cameron's ancestor again, Jewish ancestor by the way, is mentioned as playing a key role of intervening, persuading persuading the Rothschild houses to participate. Extract from the visitors' book for Alfred de Rothschild's Halton House, dated July 16, 1905. Takahashi was accompanied by his son. Other guests were Arthur Levavitt and his wife, the family of Alfred Cooper, art dealer Charles Davis, and N.M. Rothschild and Sons employee Julius Ayer. That's Nathaniel uh, Mayor Rothschild, right? So Yeah, um, and so there's a banquet there, the farewell dinner for Takahashi at the Savoy Hotel. There's uh, Ewan Cameron, second from the left, an audience with Lord Rothschild and other bank bankers. And I have kind of a meme above that. Let's just show that. See the meme where the, the cartoon where they're serving up the plates of money? Where is that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. You got healthcare, sciences, education, arts table in the background, but right. uh, there's the war table. The war, war pigs. And, and just a dead ringer for these pictures of these assholes sitting around at their farewell dinner. <laughs> You know, so what's really interesting about this whole affair with the, the Russo-Japanese War, so the story goes like this, right? So apparently the, uh, the Romanovs sent ships to basically cut off any kind of outside interference during the Civil War. If you, if you buy into the Civil War story, the Romanovs were kind of instrumental from keeping the war from becoming something more chaotic and another, you know, another takeover, right? Whether it be the British or the British money interests. So they were on the shit list of the Rothschilds. And yeah. if, you, if you look at what happens with the Romanovs, really starting from this period, all the way up through the First World War, which they're essentially, um, I wouldn't say duped to participate in, because they're related to the to families in Germany. The Romanovs were German originally. Right. So they have to go participate in this war, which bleeds their resources even more after the, the Japanese-Russo war. And then during that time, that's when the Bolsheviks get into Russia and start to turn the screws from within. So this is just the beginning of this, um, you know, decade and a half, you know, uh, uh, engineered onslaught onto the Russian people and the Romanov family. So yeah, the idea was to take them down, and also the war business, and they started some doozies of wars around around Russia, and still well, they to did this to this yeah, day. To this day. It, it, it's a flashpoint. You know, I don't know if you ran into what the Japanese were collateralizing these loans on. But what was the, what was, there was got to be some kind of payoff for Rothschild and Cameron and Levine. Well, I mean, you, it's, it's sovereign debt. So they, they have this, you know, it's backed by the Japanese government. They probably right. recognize Japan as an up and coming country. Yeah. 
and uh, kind of wanted to facilitate that, help them to maybe get, you know, and there's paybacks, later paybacks to enter into Japan for future business of trade. So, you know, what's really interesting, maybe this is a missing part of the puzzle. One of the preconditions of World War II was when Roosevelt froze the Japanese assets inside right. of the U.S., yep. right? A lot of people don't realize that that was one of the precursors to the war. And I'm wondering if this was uh, kind of the Rothschild cabal saying, okay, we're calling that note now, right? And here's the note, you're going to freeze our assets. And that's that's what we're going to do. You know, we're going we're gonna to take the assets and then we're going to be back in the war business again. So this is going to be a win-win for us. Yeah, who, yeah. Who knows? Who knows how the paper gets kind of shuffled around? That's a good point. I don't. That's really deep research to figure that out. But what I'm introducing to you is these guys are just turtles on the fence post. Now take a look at this. Take a this to kind of wrap up David Cameron. You see the little clip I have of him making a speech at the UN. UN? Yeah. Play that just for chuckles. Okay, I think we'll be able to. Uh... Just for laughs and chuckles. To defeat ISIS and organizations like it, we must defeat this ideology in all its forms. As evidence emerges about the backgrounds of those convicted of terrorist offenses, it is clear that many of them were initially influenced by preachers who claim not to encourage violence, but whose worldview can be used as a justification for it. We know this worldview the peddling of lies, that 9-11 was somehow a Jewish plot, or that the 7-7 London attacks were staged. The idea that Muslims are persecuted all over the world as a deliberate act of Western policy. The concept of an inevitable clash of civilizations. We must be clear, to defeat the ideology of extremism, we need to deal with all forms of extremism, not just violent extremism. Of course, some will argue that this is not compatible with free speech and intellectual inquiry. But I ask you, would we sit back and allow right-wing extremists, Nazis or Ku Klux Klansmen to recruit on our university campuses? No. So we shouldn't stand by and just allow any form of nonviolent extremism. We need to argue that prophecies of a global war of religion pitting Muslims against the rest of the world, these things are nonsense. We need Muslims and their governments around the world to reclaim their religion from these sick terrorists, as so many are doing and quite rightly doing today. We need all need help and to help them with programs that channel young people away from these poisonous ideologues. And we need the strongest possible international focus on tackling this ideology which is why here at the United Nations, the United Kingdom is calling for a new special representative on extremism. So, so, this, this, is coming, so this is coming from a guy that is prime minister, was instrumental in this really illegal invasion of Iraq and excursion into Afghanistan after 9-11. Right, yeah. And, and, he's, and he's wondering why maybe there's some opposition from the Muslim world, really? Really, yeah. David? You can't figure that out? You have to call that extremism? Right. I mean, it sounds like that speech could be um, recirculated 
and just sort of touched up and made up to date, you could use it right now. Yeah. Basically, the talking points are we are going to control the narrative. We're going to control speech because anybody who approaches ideas like the truth or asking questions that are uncomfortable, um, those are potentially very extreme points of view. So we want to stamp them out. And uh, it's also interesting to note that he's wearing the color purple on his tie. And that's been a very prominent color over the last few years uh, and associated with revolution. And also going back to Rome, purple is the color of nobility and royalty. So he's setting himself apart from the rest of everybody else in that, uh, in that setting. Very interesting. Um, and yet they had no problem importing millions of extremists into their country over the last yeah. seven yeah. to eight years, right? So, yep. I mean, this is the cognitive dissonance that just drives people absolutely insane. Yep, it's, talking, it's very chameleon talking two-faced commentary, talking yeah. out of two sides of your mouth. So he's related which, to the- Which is, which is, which is what Sabbatean Frankism is all about. Right, yes, absolutely. And he, he's apparently related to the Harriman family as well. That's interesting. Yeah, the Churchills through his wife. I mean, you know, it just kind of goes on and on and on, on and on and on. These are just total insiders. And man, there's just a lot of connections with war, the war business and banksterism and drug trade. Here, here's the, uh, the Alex Haley. I, it wasn't Alex Haley. I thought it was Aldous Huxley. So I need to correct that. Anytime you see a turtle up on top of a fence post, you know he had some help. Alex Haley, the author of Roots. So the other thing about Cameron, the name Cameron is, is very interesting because we have the noted mad professor uh, from Canada. Uh, I, I believe it's McGill University. Ewan Cameron, right? This is the guy that created this whole idea of psychotronic shock uh, that would be used in programming MK Ultra people, like all part of Project Monarch. It's a Cameron. Psychic driving is what it's called. So you have that Cameron, right? Then you also have James Cameron, who is the director of the Titanic, a very interesting movie for what it's about, and also Alien and Terminator, right? So the name Cameron comes up again and again and again as one of these names. Even Kirk Cameron, who uh, was on... Um, that TV show, and I forget the name of it. I wasn't really watching a lot of 80s TV, um, but he was on that TV show and then he becomes this born again actor. And uh, he's known for the, the Left Behind series of, of films where you know the, rev, the, the rapture happens and you know he's not going up for, for the popcorn party in heaven, right? And then it sells the whole rapture theme which is related to the Schofield Bible, which is a heresy, right? So the name Cameron shows up again and again and again, you know, through these various various historical lenses. So they're connected. The Camerons are connected in a much, much big picture story. So what do we got next? We got, uh, we we got, got a Bush. Bush. We got a Bush. Let's go to the camera. That Cameron one is really interesting. Like the layers of the peerage so-called peerage. A lot of that stuff is- Yeah, this next one may too. just 
strike people as really outrageous. You know, I, I, I'm not saying you have to accept every one of these, but this is I the, don't this, know. The, this is the Crowley connection. This is the Crowley connection, right? Yeah. The yeah, I, 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 I remember hearing about this uh, around 2006, 2007. And I did a, I actually did an article way back in the day um, as it relates to Bush and Crowley. Well, let's get into this because it's fascinating. The article is uh, on Winter Watch, April, October 24th. So I just re recently reran it. It's an older article. Uncanny resemblance of Barbara Bush to Aleister Crawley. I have a photo of them. You can put that on screen. Yeah, they're right there. They're together. Uh, pretty close to dead ringers. Yeah, they look extremely alike. Uh, then you get into the, the timeline where she's in Paris right around the same time that Crowley... Uh, is sharing the apartment with Frank. Well, Bar Harris. Barbara Bush is Barbara Pierce is her maiden name. Yeah, her mom was kind of another one of these wild women. Pa Pauline Pierce, who's the theoretical mother of Barbara yeah. Bush. Yeah, mm -hmm. and yeah. she was friends with the Satanist uh, Alex or Crawley, and maybe more than friends. And Pauline had a reputation for be, you know being another one of these wild girls in the 1920s. Yeah. It reported that she and Alistair were in France together around September or October of 1924. And upon her return to America, Pauline gave birth to Barbara Pierce, later Nee Bush, the wife of uh, George H. Bush, and the f mother of George W. Bush on June 8th, 1925. So W. Magazine once described Paulina Robinson Pierce as a beautiful, fabulous, critical, and meddling, and a former beauty from Ohio with extravagant tastes. She was killed in an automobile accident in Harris, New, New York, when her husband, Marvin, who was driving the car, lost control as he reached over to stop a cup of coffee, was sliding across the street seat and onto his wife. Car crashed into a wolf killing Pauline. As shown in the headliner photo here, Crawley and Barbara Bush look like peas in the same pod. So I have their, their heads cut in half. You see that? Yeah, um, it's... Uh... The resemblance is striking. Uh, the man at left is Crawley. The man at right is Marvin Pierce. So you can compare uh, Barbara Bush's alleged husband, Mar Marvin Pierce, supposed husband, with Crawley. I don't see any resemblance at all between Marvin Pierce and Barbara Bush. I see none. The head shapes are different. That it's just... Uh, you know, maybe the eyes a little bit. I can see some. I can see some resemblance here. I can see some resemblance, but the resemblance with Crowley is probably a bit not, more. See, I, I don't think. I don't think that. I don't really see any resemblance of George W. Bush that much with Crowley. No, so we'll get into this. I have some ideas around this. But let's go. Let's keep going down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Okay. So there's a picture of George W. Bush, Crawley, and his mom. Mm -hmm. And clearly, Barbara Bush is the mother of George Bush. We're not arguing that. But where it really blows your mind is Marvin Bush's, who's also the brother of George Bush and Marvin's Barbara's son. There's two pictures of him juxtaposed to Alex. Alistair Crowley at the same age. Yeah. yeah. Look at that. 
Yeah, th this is this is more of a fit. Yeah, not so much George W. Bush, but it's clearly Marvin Bush. There's another picture of Marvin Bush and Alistair Crawley at similar ages. Oh my God! <laughs> wow, even the ear—it's just like the yeah. same guy. Yeah, there's there's way more resemblance here. You know, Barbara Bush is known to make some statements that were just downright addled. You know, why yeah. should we hear about dead about body bags and deaths? It's not relevant. So why why should I waste my beautiful mind on something like that? Sounds kind of satanic to me. Barbara Marie Antoinette Bush. Interesting. Let them eat cake. Um, and then let's play this. See what he says about Ford Kennedy. What now? What's the duping delight? Time and again, he would step forward and keep his promise, even the dark clouds of political crisis gathered over America. After a deluded gunman assassinated President Kennedy, he was laughing, right? Yeah. <laughs> He was, he was having he was having a good 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 chuckle over it because he was in on that operation. Oh yeah, he was he was there. He was the field chief in Dallas for the CIA. So um, and then I guess you have uh, the village idiot here uh, talking about nine eleven. Is that what's going on in this one? Let's play it. Yeah, so if you can get that. On this bill, the men our intelligence agencies believed helped orchestrate. The 9-11 attacks can face justice. Bill would also provide clear rules for our personnel involved in detaining and questioning captured terrorists. The information that the Central Intelligence Agency has obtained by questioning men like Khalek Sheikh Mohammed has provided valuable information and has helped disrupt terrorist plots, including strikes within the United States. For example, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed described the design of planned attacks on buildings inside the U.S. and how operatives uh, were directed to carry them out. That is valuable information for those of us who have the responsibility to protect the American people. He told us the operatives have been instructed to ensure that the explosives went off at a, high po a point that was high enough to prevent people trapped above from escaping. The explosives <laughs> went off and so, so he's talking about the explosions in the building. Yeah. Yeah, you got storyline mixed up a little bit there, George. Does it is there more or is, or is that the money shot? That's pretty much that's the money shot. Placing explosives in the twin tower. Freudian slip much, I ask. Let's play this one. And you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to wonder exactly what President George W. Bush knew about the attack and when he knew it. According to the official White House version, it was at this moment in a Florida classroom that Bush learned the second plane had hit the World Trade Center and that the U.S. was under attack. But here's what George Bush himself said almost three months later when asked about September 11th. I had, was sitting outside uh, the, the, the classroom waiting to go in, and I saw an airplane hit the tower. Of a, of a t you know, the TV was obviously on, and I... I used to fly myself, and I said, well, there's one terrible pilot. And uh, I said, it must have been a, a horrible accident. But I was whisked off there. I didn't have much time to think about it. Now, wait a minute. 
George Bush was told about the second plane while he was inside the classroom. So you just heard him describe seeing the first plane crash on television that day. But that's impossible. No one saw the first plane crash on TV on September the 11th because the videotape of it didn't surface until the next day. Right. So <laughs> just little things. I don't know. <laughs> holes in the story. Yeah, I just kind of showing what these people are like. Well, so let's talk a little bit about uh, George Bush, who is the ultimate uh, turtle on the fence post. Like, again, we have the skull and bones um, relationship. We have a completely thrown election in 2000 with the hanging chads. Al Gore, who comes from another blue blood family in the United States, right, who ultimately will play the role of, you know, laying down for that election. So that's the ultimate turtle on the fence post moment. You know, they're going to go into Florida, which is the state that's being governed by his brother, Jeb Bush. And that's where they're going to theoretically throw the monkey wrench in the election, delay it. And eventually the Supreme Court unprecedented rules on the election that George Bush is actually the winner of the election. Turtle on the fence post. And if you go back and look at his so-called professional life, he was essentially given um, the role of being the owner of the Texas Rangers baseball team. He had like no experience. Um, everything he had done had been kind of a failure. And he winds up becoming the owner of the Rangers. And, and, as, and as the grandson of this grandson of Alistair Crawley. I don't know he if he is. I don't, I don't know if he is. I think there's some weird stuff inside of these breeding lines. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if he is. Theoretically, he might be. Clearly, Marvin Bush looks a lot more like the grandson. When you get into these breeding lines, I think that there's like bigger questions. You know, just look at the Obama daughters. Like, oh, really? Where did they get them from? Right. And there's, you know, there was this story where you know, they were, they were adopted. There was this couple that had them. Th this stuff goes on all the time. And maybe he was the grandson of Crowley, but clearly doesn't have any of that charisma or intelligence or anything even remotely associated. But, but he was Crowley, a Satanist. I mean, George Bush was clearly a satanic warmonger, probably as but, much as any president we've ever had. I agree with that. 100%. He was, he was malleable. George Bush was malleable. Um, what was his and name? That, and actually, you look at the Bush, you look at the Bush side of the family, the Prescott Bush, his grandfather, and you look at the father, the great, the great grandfather, I forget his name, was a ma major munitions guy in World War One in the war business. Yep. You know, what are the what are the chances of being president of the United States when your great grandfather was a big kingpin and making war, war materials? He used to brag. But both of them used to brag, but particularly George Bush Sr. He would brag when he was in the service that he was going to be president one day. Like he already knew that that was part of his destiny. And I think the kid knew it as well. Right. So. Again, these are these are turtle on the fence post people. Yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and war business and and war banking, same kind of the same nonsense as Cameron. Right, and even like being transplanted from 
uh, where were they originally from? Like Maine, right? They were they were from Maine, and then they decided that they were going to take up a ranch in Texas, and you know, take advantage of a lot of opportunities in Texas, which they did. When George George Bush was governor of Texas, that was one of the things that was handed to him, right? And and uh, one of the things that he did as governor of Texas is he made a deal with this Spanish company to run the toll roads in Texas, right? Like he couldn't even figure out, uh, a, you know, a Texas company to run the toll roads in Texas. To this day, this Spanish company is still the company that runs the toll roads here. So you can see that where he was making deals and doing all this internationalist bullshit. Um, but he's a turtle on the fence post guy, a classic example classic example I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen this picture this clip of him wiping his hands on bill clinton let's do this i've never i've never seen, never this, seen one. this let's do it they're in a haiti and they're shaking hands with a bunch of the uh you know, the plebs down there percebeu. You know, there's there's also <laughs> he says kind of, she says eu percebi I can't believe it she says in Portuguese. <laughs> there, there's also there's also a weird kind of um, form of almost like sympathetic magic there too, where he's like like he's taking the essence off of one person and rubbing it on the other person, you know whether that whether that's conscious or not, but. That's he's, he's been getting the sweat of all these people in the earthquake. You know, so everything's well, well, dirty yeah. down there. But, he well, can't but, handle it because he's just such a jackass. Well, but there's also the like the weird, like Haiti's really big into stuff like sympathetic magic, you know, using blood yeah. and hair and perspiration. You know, maybe, maybe he's just doing, you know, as in Rome, doing, the, you know, the I, gotta, I, gotta, I have to hand it to Bill Clinton. You know, he's working the crowd. He's not doing it. He's not behaving like this. He's connecting with people. I have to kind of give it to Bill Clinton in a lot of ways in this particularly this scene. Well, he's another turtle on the fence post guy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Where did he come from? Now, well, you know, Bill Clinton, I don't know. I haven't done anything on his genealogy. There's rumors that there's some kind of Rockefeller connection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So and his, uh, and his, his mother was a hooker or something. Right. So if you go and I've talked to people from Arkansas. And they're like, yeah, if you don't believe that Winthrop Rockefeller was Bill Clinton's father, like you're, you just fell off the turnip truck, right? People in Arkansas generally acknowledge this. And one of the things I've talked about on the show before is, um, have you ever seen the movie, The Devil's Advocate with Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino? It's worth watching because that character, played by Keanu Reeves, his name is Kevin, is the cipher of Bill and Hillary Clinton. So why is that? Well, he gets the he gets the notice of the devil, who's played by Al Pacino, by winning a particular case in Florida. What was that case? He got a pedophile off, right? Hillary Clinton, that's in her background. Right. She right. got a pedophile off. Okay, that's number one. Number two... The Keanu Reeves character does not know who his 
birth father is. And his mother is this unassuming woman who, you know, cleans houses for a living, right? Well, he comes to find out later that the devil himself, Al Pacino, is his father, which is, again, a cipher for the Rockefellers. So that's a very interesting movie. That movie should be essential viewing for people because there are so many tells with that movie. He does, I have seen that movie quite a while ago. Didn't he kind of... He- he makes a deal with the devil, right? Well, he doesn't make a conscious deal. Uh, the devil, who is Al Pacino, who owns a law firm, brings him to New York to work for his firm. And the characters in the movie themselves are like really interesting because Keanu Reeves has a really strange background. You know, his father was, I believe, Ken Reeves was born in Lebanon, I think. And his father's got this weird relationship with Beirut. Looks like he might be a mercenary or an alphabet agency guy. Spends most of his adult life in prison. So there's this weird backstory with Keanu Reeves and his father. Then you have his wife, who's played by Charlize Theron. And that story's weird because Charlize Theron and her mother murdered their father in South Africa. Right. And she goes on to become this, you know, MK Ultra um, you know, really? babe, babe. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, it gets weird. And then you have um, what's his name? Um, oh, God. He was on Wee's Playhouse. Um, Richard, what's his name? And in real life, um, he's actually um, the devil's. He's actually arrested for child porn. Right. And it's like all these characters in this movie are set up in a very, very strange way. What's the guy's name? And even the use of voodoo um, in the movie is very significant with um, Delroy Lindo uh, playing Jeffrey Jones plays Eddie Barzoon, um, who in real life winds up being arrested for having child pornography on his computer. And then you have the whole voodoo story in the beginning of the movie with Delroy Lindo basically ensuring that Keanu Reeves would win his first case because he takes this cow tongue and drives nails into it so that when he goes up against the opposing attorney in his first case, the opposing attorney can't speak, right? And what did we just see? We just saw Bill Clinton in Haiti, you know, where this whole, you know, um, you know, voodoo diaspora starts from, actually starts from Africa, but it goes to Haiti. Right. So if you want to have a, a real show and tell movie, watch The Devil's Advocate. There's so much in there. And one of the other pieces with that movie is that the Al Pacino character basically says, you will not recognize me. Right. You will not mm-hmm. recognize my power because I move amongst the masses. You know, I travel the subways. You know, I dress like a common man and the most richest and powerful people. You know, the Elon Musk and all these people that have all the supposed wealth, they're not the profile. The profile of the people that we're talking about are what Al Pacino is talking about in that movie. You would not, you would walk right past them on, on a city street because that's how they roll. So I think the devil's advocate is essential viewing to understand what's going on in this game, particularly when you understand that the Keanu Reeves character is a cipher of Bill and Hillary Clinton. So that's just a little bit of a side side. Yeah, that's interesting. 
so the movie's kind of a template for the people Absolutely. pulling the strings, pulling a, the, turtles, the turtle strings. The turtle strings, and you and you even have the characters. I mean, the actors themselves are just really strange characters in real life, particularly Theron and Reeves. So, um, yeah, Keanu, Keanu Reeves comes across as a really appealing guy. I mean, he's kind of likable. He's kind of to me, I mean, I think he's kind of has good screen presence, positive. Oh, he he's beloved. People love Keanu yeah. Reeves, and he always plays these characters where he's a savior. That's that's another part of him. He's right. always a savior. I mean, even in Bill and Ted, he plays kind of a hey dude out of brain savior of the planet, right? Bill and Ted are saviors, and that's a theme throughout almost all of his movies. Rarely do you see Keanu Reeves ever play a bad guy. Like you'd have to search pretty deep into his uh, film category, but he's always a savior character. So, and women love him. They're like, oh yeah, we love Keanu Reeves. He respects women. So um, who do we have? We got Obama. We've got time for Obama. We're going to go Obama. Yeah, we got Obama. We got Obama. We can squeeze that one in. Uh, again, we lead off uh, Will Obama, Barack Obama's real father, please stand up. These are all stories are all linked on my site when I put this up, and uh, you can put them up too. Obviously, he's the so he can, is, he is the old. I mean, he might be the ultimate turtle on the fence post. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, this, they they have a the story of him being born in Kenya is a backstory, a distraction. He was yeah. he was born in Hawaii. Right. And then, of course, we have the mysterious death of the uh, clerk <laughs> in the plane crash. The woman who uh, it wasn't uh, the birth certificate. Well, it, it was a uh, document of birth or something like that. It was like a weird thing. Looks like it had been photoshopped. And, and then Donald Trump got on board this Kenya, uh, Kenya backstory or distraction. Right, which I yeah, think I think that's kind of suspicious behavior on Trump's part. So it's a decoy to draw attention away from his real inception. And his biological father was Frank Marshall Davis, 1905 to 1987. So we could start with the comparisons of the alleged father, Barack Obama, on the left, uh, Barack Obama the second, and Frank Marshall Davis. Now keep in mind that Barack Obama had a nose job as yeah. illustrated below the three pictures. Yeah. So you got to plug, you got to plug that in there. And the, the, you know, of course he's half white. So it's, you know, he's got a little different racial mix than Frank Marshall Davis, certainly right. the African, but he sure, you know, the idea that a dark African with this weird looking Barack Obama was the father. Really? Yeah. Right. And then no the resemblance. Whole, right. And then the whole, you know, backstory of how he flew in, met him at the airport in Honolulu, um, and then flew out. And that's like really the only time he ever really meets him. Right. right. And this is, that's just, that whole thing is really bizarre. So here, here's the story. There's, there's evidence that Davis at the age of 54 had a triest, triest, triest with Obama's mother, Ann Dunham, when she was 18. So here we get into this freakish behavior again. Yep. It seems to just kind of dominate the lives of these people. 
Yeah, I, I remember. Stranger yet. Go ahead. Keep going. Stranger yet, Dunham's legal name was Stanley Ann Dunham, named after her father. Incidentally, Obama's grandpa Stanley came across his mother, his mother, dead of suicide when he was eight years old. He was then shipped out by his dad. So I wonder how grandpa turned out. Grandpa Dunham. Right. According to the documentary, Dreams of My Real Father. Now, I, this documentary came out a few years ago, and I think this guy nailed it. Is, is I that, think he nailed is, it. Is that, uh, uh, what, what's his name? The guy that did uh, 10,000 Mules. Is that the same guy? Yeah, and he did the one on uh, the... Uh, he's done a couple of really great documentaries. He really right. has. Yeah. But they just... Dinesh 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 D'Souza, right? No, 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 no. Uh, it's another guy. Oh, 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 I know who the guy you're talking about. That guy's interesting. Yeah, that guy's interesting. Yeah, his name yeah, is he, 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 he did one on the uh, the the racial hope, the shooting of. Uh, oh God, mine's did, going blank. Did, did he anyway. do? A, did he do a Sandy Hook video? No, nothing like that. His name is Joel something, right? It's yeah, Joel something. yeah, yeah. I know who did it. Yeah. So anyway, according to that documentary, which I'd highly recommend, uh, Davis was a well-known leftist, well-educated, well-spoken, aficionado of jazz and photography, a certain type of photography, I might add. He was also a pervert, using the pseudonym Bob Green, admitted to authoring a book about his proclivities in 1968 called Black Sex Rebel. And uh, friends describe Ann Dunham, who's Obama's mother is an original before her time feminist describing him as a friend, Anne's father. Now let's you know, keep in mind Anne's father's background, you know, keep that in, in, in your thinking. He brings this older black gentleman home and starts hanging, hanging out. And then Anne became shortly after pregnant with Barack and so while Anne was, at, so what they were doing is a rendezvousing. He, she was kind of lonely because they had moved from Seattle, right. and she wanted to go back to the University of Washington, and and she went back there I think briefly, and it didn't. I, I forget all the details, but she got kind of stuck in Hawaii, graduating from high school. It was kind of lonely, uh, and so she starts hanging out with Frank Mar Marshall, and Frank Marshall's. You see the photo there. Yeah, That's I remember. Yeah, I remember seeing these photos back in. This is from Frank Marshall's collection of pornography. He was selling this uh, girly magazine. Right, right. That's a dead ringer. Even the you last. You got to remember, this is Honolulu. There aren't that many. First of all, there's not that many. There's not a huge black population in Honolulu. I lived there for a while. Right. It's mostly Asian. Yeah. And there really aren't that many whites. Right. And so you got a white girl, young white girl, showing up in Frank Marshall Davis's photo collection. At the same time, he admits to selling this stuff to, to magazines. Right. And, you know, you think maybe along the way you might have got her pregnant, Frank? Even the last name, right? Dunham. She Dunham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're doing softcore porn photos, and you didn't get – but we had to completely dismiss the idea that 
she was impregnated by Frank Marshall Davis. Right. Did, uh, did, didn't he call, didn't he call him Uncle Frank for a while? Wasn't that his name? Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll go into that. So the head, Uncle the head Frank. photos could be compared. I got that on the left and the right. right. Uh, the one on the right is from Davis's photos. The, the, you got that on screen. So people can yep. see it. Oh yeah. People. Yeah. There's more of them too. That's not right. The there's, the, there's the nudie shot on the right. And then there's the head photos right. in the books, dreams of my father's. It shows the same furniture from the pose in Davidson's house from the photos taken at a different time. Photos show a Christmas tree and furniture seen in other photos of Frank's residence. So it establishes that his residence, that's his residence. That's his So it's furniture. a match. It's a match. And, and daddy, grandpa, you know, daddy brought him around. Right. So, so he was a, he was was a fixer. On, yeah, but he was born on August 4th, 1961. So November would have been a likely time of impregnation. So you can kind of count back. That's when she was kind of hanging out with Frank. I mm -hmm. kind of, uh, I said, Frank Davis is married and the age difference between him and Dunham would have been embarrassing and, and the baby had no name. Dunham's father, the grandfather of, uh, of Barack Obama, more likely arranged a marriage of convenience with Obama Sr. in exchange for money and visa benefits for the young and very poor Kenyan with the time was attending University of Hawaii. So he, they just drummed him up. Right. And, and, and there's CIA, there are CIA backgrounds running through all of this, right? You have the CIA backgrounds. You also have uh, Stanley and Dunham's father uh, being connected to socialist fronts, you know, this whole thing going on with the CIA and these socialists. These are all programs that are operating in the background. And also, right. with, now, also now, finance now, again, as well. the question is, are they pre-planned or is this an opportunity to kind of pick up these characters? Because Mama's mother was definitely CIA. She was working with CIA in Indonesia. Well, she doesn't and, get those connections without the father. So when you go to the father's background, you can see yeah. some of those connections. They're already there. They're nascent, but they're there. Yes. And, when, and then she does go to... Uh, Indonesia and works with Timothy Geithner's father, right? That's a big right. That's a big right. tell. Ford Foundation. Yes, and you and I talked about this uh, prior to uh, hitting the, the the go button on the show. Um, Lolo Sotero is apparently apparently when he died was like one of the top fifty richest people that we know of on the planet, right? Like like he was there in Indonesia when all this stuff was happening. You know, there was big stuff going on in Indonesia that was related to the overthrow of, who was it, um, Sukarno, right? That's one of the roles that was being played. In Indonesia, Ronald Reagan called Indonesia the pearl of the South Pacific because of all the resources, including oil. So Sotero apparently was filthy rich. And um, Obama supposedly inherited his fortune. So Obama, the reason why Obama never had to work a day in his life is because he was he was rich, right? Once that marriage happened, once that connection was established, right, he was a made man from that point forward. It's, it's, so Sartoro, who is the stepfather, was a deep deep agent, essentially crime syndicate guy all the way around. Absolutely, there's a picture of them down below here. And 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 the historical reference of Indonesia at the time that that. Obama's mother is over there, and Obama himself is over there. It was a bloodbath. Oh, 
Absolutely. Another film, The Year of Living Dangerously with Mel Gibson. That's the background uh, based on the book where there's this revolution happening, right? And the revolution is who's going to run the country? Is it going to be the kind of the national socialists or is it going to be the national corporatists? And the national corporatists who this guy represents winds up winning. And they're the yeah. ones that take over Indonesia. And, and what a coincidence that Barack Obama is over there as a child in this setting. That's just kind of, really? An yeah. awful lot of quinky dinks in here. So uh, flipping back to, to Davis, though, I mean, that's a good sideline because I didn't really know the part about his stepfather. Oh, yeah. I didn't really know, He's I a big really player. That. Big I just player. thought he was a schmuck. Why did you why, why, why did you um, cross that line out? Looked like a football player and spoke like a poet. I'm curious. Uh, that was that was in his book. Uh, that that was his bio, you know, biography that uh, Ayers wrote. Ayers wrote. Right. I mean, he was he was close to Sam Frank Davis. Who, so who, Dave, a, a, Davis Ayers? ultimately agreed to play a role in mentoring Barry. Right. Particularly after he returned to Hawaii from Indonesia when Barry was 10 years old. Why? By, by Stanley, the grandfather, and Anne's request, they would say blood runs thick. It's generally believed that Barry didn't figure out the truth until he stumbled across an original birth certificate that said father unknown, at which point his grandfather revealed the truth. So Barry, Barry knew. Barack <laughs> knew. <laughs> Barry came to call uh frank pop and in college he wrote a strange cycle babble poet about pop you can read it here under some descriptive of best american poet so Barack obama was always being promoted to some kind of a friggin genius genius artist intellectual yeah, yeah. big fawning buildup of him right. including the including the ridiculous nobel peace prize and so we'll, I may come we'll, we'll, we'll address that when we get through all this. So that's a really interesting moment. So keep going here. Okay. So he, so I, I, you can read the poem. I'll leave it to others to psychoanalyze. And where's where's, the, where's the poem? Oh, this is the poem right here. Yeah. I, I think you can read it. It says read it here. There's a link there. Let's see. It used, used to be. Why don't, why don't I do a rendering of the poem? Okay. Here, everybody. Let's see what we have here. I don't want to subscribe. The best American poetry. Can is you it, get it? Is, is it under Obama? It's been a while since I've written this article, so sometimes these links here, sort of. Let, let, let's just do this. Let's just see if it's in here. Do search. Okay, let's go. Let's proceed. Is it there? Um. It's been removed. It's been removed. Apparently. Okay, so they're, yeah, they're deep sixing all this stuff. You got, you know, they have to go and just bury it. When this stuff comes up, it's got to get deep sixed. Right. But I, I read the poet. I can poem. I can tell you, I read the poet. I don't know exactly what I made of it. I didn't think it's exactly a big poetic genius, but it's, sometimes it's kind of hard for me to interpret poetry. But any, but anyway, when he took a job in South Chicago as a community organizer and took and had took some time one day to visit the areas where Frank had lived, he finally wrote in his book, his autobiography, 
I imagine Frank in baggy suit and wide lapel standing in front of the old Regal Theater waiting to see Duke or Ella emerge from a, dig, a gig. So beyond the subterfuge about his real background, why does Frank Marshall Davis, the man who looked like a football player and spoke like a poet, that link works, even matter? Primarily because he played an ideological role in Obama's formative years. Davis was a lifelong organizer, agitator, and writer in the leftist movement. You can see, hit, see it in the Wikipedia. He right. got his start in Chicago and actually joined the Communist Party in 1943. When asked if he was a communist before a Congressional Investigative Committee in 57, he pleaded fifth. Obama's early edition of his book, Dreams of My Father, ghostwritten by weatherman radical Bill Ayers, Frank is mentioned 25 times, but he's strangely missing in later editions. The first edition was published in 1995, when Obama was preparing to run for office in Chicago. So as Obama came of age and began to think for himself, Frank lectured him as he prepared to depart for college. Obama summarizes Frank and his mom as being stuck in a Hawaii 60s time warp. That kind of remark is part and partial to any independent offspring and his parents and is one of the few normal uncontrived things I've ever read coming out of Obama. <laughs> Yeah. He kind of criticizes his mentor and his parents. Well, right. you know, I mean, we all do that, right? <laughs> At some point in our lives. Yeah. Obama returned to Hawaii to attend Frank's funeral service in 1987. Ironically, Frank's parting advice was the most sage of all. Don't sell out to the elites. I'm sure Pop would be rolling over his grave if he knew what transpired. But may so maybe Pop didn't really know what the role was of Barack Obama. He kind of died. Mm -hmm. Before he kind of saw the ultimate game plan, right? Yeah, but he did. He did get Obama connected to the to Ayers, the whole Ayers Chicago scene. Yeah, yeah, who sponsored his early political career. So there was a connection there. So all, all these influences could be debated, but the bottom line is that Frank Marshall Davis is. Barack Obama's biological father, and go down there and look. You know, look at some of the. Let's see. I thought I had a picture of the body builds side by side. They're built the uh, same way. Yeah, I didn't see that in the original when, uh, when I went through this. Initially, I found his poem. By the way, should I read his poem? If you want, just look good. I don't know if it's good or not, but I found it. So here, let me read his poem. Pop, sitting in his seat, a seat broad and broken, in, sprinkled with ashes. Pop switches channels, takes another shot of Seagram's, neat, and asks, what to do with me, green young man, who fails to consider the flim-flam of the world? Since things have been easy for me, I stare hard at his face, a stare that deflects off his brow. I'm sure he's unaware of his dark, watery eyes that glance in different directions and his slow, unwelcome twitches fail to pass. I listen, nod, listen, open till I cling to his pale, beige t-shirt, yelling, yelling in his ears that hang with heavy lobes. 
but he's still telling his joke. So I ask why. He's so unhappy, to which he replies, but I don't care anymore because he took too damn long. From under my seat, I pull out the mirror I've been saving. I'm laughing, laughing loud, the blood rushing from his face to mine as he grows small, a spot in my brain, something that may have been squeezed out like a watermelon seed between two fingers, pops, takes another shot, neat, points out the same amber, stain on his shorts that I've got on mine. Oh, isn't that interesting? Makes me smell his smell coming from me. He twitches, channels, recites an old poem he wrote before his mother died. Stands, shouts, and asks for a hug as I think my arms barely reaching around his thick, oily neck, his broad back, because I see my face framed within Pop's framed glasses. Wow, right there. And I know he's laughing too. Right, so he sees himself in the guy. Well, he is. He knows he's a son. <laughs> That's right. That's it. That's the giveaway, Pop. That's it. That's the key line of that whole ridiculous poem. Hey, Russ, turn your uh, tilt your screen down a little bit. You're becoming the incredibly disappearing man. All right, there. there you are. Yeah, that's good. So, a turtle on the fence post guy, um, one of the ultimate, probably. Um, and you talk here about how he uh, was teaching uh, Saul Linsky's rules for radicals in Chicago, um, the whole Cloward Piven strategy, which we have are seeing right now. Um, in action, right? And then you also get into how he's a hustler in high school. Uh, I was listening to an interview from a high school classmate about Barry who said he first came off as charming, but then we continually lie and compulsively bullshit about the most mundane things, almost like a game. Sounds like mom and pop were good teachers. Obama controls it better now and acts more serious, but earlier on, he had this constant duping delight smirk on his face when doing his spin. So, yeah, he might be the ultimate turtle on the fence post guy and, you know, gets award after award. Um, did he get, did he, did he get an Oscar or an Emmy for like the audio rendition of books of my father, dreams of my father? There was something like, you know, he got all these awards. And then of course he gets the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo where um, I think they're, they're all kind of hanging out. And this is, you and I talked a little bit about this, and this is the weird um, side story that took place during that time. And it was when he was there, they had this weird spiral phenomena that took place. This is when he's actually getting his um, Peace Prize, right? So there's this weird spiral phenomena that takes place. And you can see it here. Like there are all these pictures, like, like what's going on here, right? Something is happening and they've never been able to theoretically explain it, right? And that's happening at the same time. So when you go into this very deep rabbit hole that I'm gonna show you, we talked a little bit about before, we talked about this, um, this character named Matreya and there's this theory um, that Maitreya was actually part of a uh, MI6 um, 
operation with this guy um, who was uh, the Matreya handler. Oh, God, his, his name is escaping. Give me, give me one second here. Um, and that Obama supposedly actually played Matreya. Here, I'll show you the. Hmm. I'll show you this um, this Pinterest. So there are pictures of Matreya in Kenya, which of course is a place that Obama has been connected to through this idea of the you know the birth. You may not allow me to get there. A lot of this stuff has been scrubbed from the internet, but you can see here on the right hand side, right? So. This is what Matreya looked like, right? These were the pictures of Matreya. That if you take uh, Barry Soatero right around this age and you put a beard on him, this is what he looks like. Hmm. So there's this very interesting connection with this idea that this uh, Messiah character that shows up in Kenya and begins to relate to these people, you know, from this kind of miraculous place, right? That when you do the forensics on them, that there's a very good chance that he might even be Obama, right? So there's this whole thing with the spiral. Um, let me see if I can find it. There's this whole thing with the spiral that's connected to Maitreya. Let me see if I can just do this really quickly. The, the, the search on, on, um, on Google is shit now. And DuckDuckGo is a little bit better, but... You can get some better results. Right, so even now you can see that um, this is a this is from Red Eyes TV. So this was actually covered by uh, Henrik Palmgren, and Benjamin Cram is the MI6 agent who's promoting this whole idea of Matreya, right? So this is the guy who says he's met with Matreya um, and uh, is uh, broadcasting his arrival of the world prophet. Right. And so one of the things that plays a kind of this significant role with Maitreya is the Norway spiral. And mm -hmm. you can, and he talks about the spiral and how the spiral is related to Maitreya. Like, well, look at this, look at this picture of him with his family in Indonesia and look, and look at this talisman, evil and this inverted arm man rune talisman he's got around him. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the whole Obama story is very strange. And there's that period where he goes to work for this company um, that's a CIA front. He, and he goes to work for them for a year. And he kind of drops out. And that's where I think he starts to move around places like Africa and the Middle East. I forget the name of the company, like BIC or some shit like that. Well, he was definitely, he, he earned his spurs with the CIA in Afghanistan. That's right. Yeah. He, he was not, at, he was not at Columbia university. Nobody even knew, knew about him. He was plucked up by uh, 
you know, various mentors, probably Zelensky. Zelensky, uh, oh, Brzezinski was his guy. Yeah, Brzezinski was his guy. And basically he brought him into the intelligence operations to operate in in Pakistan, where apparently it was very, very effective supplying arms to the uh, uh, resistance to the Russians and really right. earned his spurs there. And that I think that's kind of where he moved up, up the ladder, similar to like Clinton providing yeah. services at Mena Airport on drug smuggling at the in the Iran Contra thing. Yeah, although Clinton was a lot of trust at that time. there, right? Yeah, lot, yeah. So the company is called BIC. I was right about that which is Business International Corporation. And there was a time when Wayne Madsen was a really great um, investigative journalist. And he's got a big background here that's connected to Obama, uh, MI6, Sotero, like everything that we've talked about. I may leave this as a a link here. um, uh, Here's another little item before we kind of wrap up on this, but he was... Obama may have been put through the CIA's East-West Mind Control Program, the University of Hawaii, as both Frank and Obama's grandfather Dunham were very interested in this kind of research. Frank starts babbling out of context about this, quote, interesting program in an interview in 1980s. Right. Might have, might have run him through that a little bit. Uh, yeah, that, that links into Project Phoenix, when they were doing a lot of that stuff uh, during the Vietnam War, and um, and I'm I, I'm just going on a hunch, right? But I would assume that a lot of the Project Phoenix stuff happens in Hawaii uh, because of the the location um, that is next, that is like the proximity to, um, to to the Vietnam front, right? So there's a lot of that stuff going on there during that time. It wouldn't surprise me at all. And that takes us back to like you and Cameron and uh, psychic right. driving and everything that happened at McGill University, which you actually don't get into directly, but you start to talk about this in this article that you wrote about th- this horror story with this woman who was doing all these well, um, yeah, I, I have an article on, on you. And, I, have an ar- I have an article on Cameron too. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, because you were okay. Bender. Yeah, Bender, which is like a whole different topic, which we'll go into next month. We promise we'll get around to doing some of these uh, fraud quacks. Laura Bender is one of them. Um, that, 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 that's, that's a, that's a horror about. story. Yeah, we could we could put the two of those together, and then get a little of Freud covered too, because that 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 kind of drops into some of the things we're talking about here with Barry and Barry's yeah. background. Yeah, who he's really all about. And yeah, who, who are the people around him? Yeah, when you get into but, the but again, again, it ain't Barack Obama Sr. from Kenya. I got news for you. Right. Yeah, and I think you're all over it in terms of the misdirection with um, the place versus the actual uh, paternity of Obama. Uh, by the way, I I used to do a show on Gaia TV. I did, I think I did 25 episodes where I would combine astrology with a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. And my last show was on Obama and I was looking at Obama's chart and his chart in relation to these other people. That was the last show I did at, at uh, Gaia. I was done after that. In fact, I remember walking out of the building that day thinking, 
I think I'm done now. <laughs> it's like, and that, that show, by the way, was taken down. You can't, you can't find it anymore. So um, yeah, interesting, interesting character. And probably the ultimate turtle on the fence post with, uh, you know, joining the ranks of all these other turtles on the fence post. And if I'm not mistaken, Obama hired Kerry at some point to come into his administration and work for him. Right. right. And has enjoyed a very close personal relationship with George W. Bush, particularly George and Michelle, who seem to be very cozy with one another. Yes. So yep. there's, a there's a club here, right? Yep. Turtle on the fence post, though. Well, Russ, what do you got going? I know that you're going to take care of your body here pretty soon, but what about the website? Got any uh, articles or any other shows you got coming up? Oh, no, I'm kind of uh, just doing pretty much reruns and kind of winding a lot of that down. But there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of good material. and I'm kind of getting them all lined up. And so, you know, kind of going through the evergreen articles and getting them up there in sequence and kind of rooting out some of the weaker articles or some of the stuff that's more timely at the time, but isn't timely now. And, and it's helped organize the site yeah. a little differently. So as you go back from where we are today and go back several months, you're going to actually kind of see some of my best articles coming through. Okay. Suggestion. I think it would be really helpful if you hired somebody to compile your evergreen articles and arrange them sequentially and put them into a book form. Yeah, I'm kind of always I'm kind of afraid of doing a book, a book because once you get into the profit motive, then you kind of end up being a target. You know, if, if you if you the way it works, if you're just writing a personal blog and you're not making any money on it, it's pretty hard for people to go after you. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think everybody's fair. The, the reason the reason they're going after Alex Jones is that he's made a lot of money. Right. With his message. Well, yeah, we could get into a whole show about Alex Jones. Um, but I, I just think it'd be a useful resource. And right. uh, I think it'd make a, a, actually a really good book. I, it's something I've thought about, but for strategic reasons and for sort of personal reasons, I've decided not to go a book route. Sure. First of all, I don't think anybody would really buy it. And it would end up being uh, profitable enough that it would ex expose me to what I'm talking about. Well, if for some reason the internet goes down, yeah. right, it would be really good to have physical copies of these pieces. Um, and who knows, maybe you do a limited run. Maybe you do something like 500, you know, or maybe 100. But just to have them, just in case, you know, the lights go out, I think it would be great. Yeah, I, I have all my articles uh, kind of preserved, saved. They're good in, on the cloud. Good. And I've, I've actually, when I was with, with my son, I was kind of talking about uh, if I were to pass away, let's say, I kind of said, uh, you take some of the money that I'm giving you and just keep the side up. Right. Jasper, agrees, like Jasper agrees with you. <laughs> you know my buddy Jasper, right? I mean, I sound a little fatalistic saying that, but it's something we were talking well, about. Well, I, I mean, look, you know, at a certain point in time, you, you have to have these discussions. You know, they're 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 just part of the evolutionary track that we're on, 
Well, I have my own discussions that, that are similar in my head, but you know, they're different. But similar, you get to a certain age and you go, okay, well, what's going to be my legacy? What am I leaving behind? Who's in charge of it? Um, you know, if you're not having those discussions, you're, you're, you know, kind of out to lunch, I think, a little bit, right? Um, so anyway, that's just an aside. Well, we look forward to seeing you again in the last Friday of November. Oh, yeah, I'm going to be kind of interested in some of the comments on this shows, the shows tonight, see what people, other people are seeing. I was surprised that our last show did not get very many comments on your website. Um, but this one, I think, will garner more. And uh, we certainly we always get comments on the YouTube side of things. But right. by, the by the time we get together again, which would be the end of November, we'll have experienced whatever we're going to experience here with these midterm elections and the, the craziness and the insanity that will ensue. It's already happening now. You know the the Pelosi story, the Paul Pelosi story. Have you have you yeah. seen this thing? Yeah, I don't know. You think that was a setup? Maybe kind oh, of. Oh, it, it sounds it sounds like a setup. Like how some first, cra some crazy right wing person goes after the husband and trying to oh, do that kind come of shit. On. I mean, if you know like what goes on with these families and their security, like there's a gate. They got a big gate. They lived in a gated house. You know she's got security, a security. So they're, doing, they're doing some kind of victimhood stance to kind of get sympathy for, and it, and go after the, the extremists. Right. And who knows? I mean, one of the running jokes is, is that, you know, may, maybe Paul's hooker roughed him up a little bit, you know, <laughs> and that's how they're spinning this thing. Um, and, and then you have this other story which is kind of flying under the radar a little bit with Carrie Lake, who's running for uh, the governor of Arizona and her opponent, the, uh, Katie Hobbs, the invisible woman, um, a story leaked out that somebody raided Katie Hobbs's um, election headquarters. And Katie Hobbs said that it was the uh, masses that were inflamed by Carrie Lake's rhetoric that went to go in and, uh, you know, destroy records and things like that. And they're using this as a ploy to, you know, it's like a Reichstag moment, right? So yeah. that they can theoretically, and Carrie Lake, I don't know if you've ever watched her. She's sharp. Wow. Like, yeah. I, I'm not a huge fan she's gotta, of she's raise. She's got to raise her tongue. I'm not a huge fan of politics, right? I think it's kind of a sideshow, but she's a really interesting sideshow. The way, the way she handles a room and deals with these reporters, I've never seen anybody do this before. I mean, she makes Trump look like an amateur. That's how good yeah, she she's is. Skilled. She's very she's skilled. skilled. I saw, you know, just in passing, I saw a almost like a two-hour analysis of Vladimir Putin and his communication techniques. Yeah. And it's called the Behavior Panel, if you want to look that up and look at this Vladimir this, they analyze Vladimir Putin and just how skillful a guy is. It's, just, it's kind of embarrassing because you kind of think of the leadership of the United States, a bunch of demented retards compared to the skill of Vladimir Putin as a communicator and how he kind of handles tough questions and very, very skillful guy. Yeah. I mean, this goes, this goes back years. You, know, you can see how he responds to, uh, you know, hard questions during the Syrian conflict, right? And he's just incredibly skilled at answering the question, being very logical, very clear. 
and then asking other questions rhetorically that are logical and clear. And he's always very calm. He never like raises his voice, but he's also not monotone uh, in terms of how, so he's, you know, he's very, yeah, he's got very quick stuff. comebacks to stuff. So if you get it, you get him slightly cornered, maybe you might ask him a question that kind of corners, corners him. He kind of, he, at one point, the guy, he was talking about how the United States made a deal with the Soviet, with the old Soviet Union, that they wouldn't encroach, right. expand uh, uh, NATO to the borders of Poland. Right. And he says, well, you've reneged on that deal. That uh, deal." And the guy, the reporter, comes back at him real hard. He says, well, where is that, uh, where, where is that in a treaty form? Is that actually uh, for real, Vladimir? And he looks at him and says, you got me. You got me. You got me. Very important to get this stuff in, in writing. <laughs> That's funny. That's yeah. funny. <laughs> well, you know, he's a judo master, right? He's a judo master. A friend of mine who I used to have on my show, Richard Grossinger, published one of his books on judo. So he's very good at, you know, judo is like the art of redirecting energy, right? Like using somebody's force against them. It's like a keto, but unlike a keto, there are takedowns and pins and holds. So that's his training. You know, he got all that training. Yeah, he's, he's just got a sharp mind. I kind of wish the United States had come up with somebody of that capability, but it's just it seems to be impossible. There seems to be like a bunch of retards and demented people. And well, these are the turtles and, and on the turtle, fence post. Turtle, yeah, these turtle on the fence post, strange, op, strange people. Now, you know, Vladimir Putin's probably a, a turtle on the fence post too. Right. But at least he's skilled. At least he's skilled and has some training. Yeah, now we get the turtles on the fence post from Mars. Yeah. That's, that's what we're getting. And the gene pool, I've met some young people that are actually quite um, remarkable in their own way. Right. But I'm not sure if that's the gene pool that they're pulling from no, for, the not. for the future leaders of America. No, right. They're, they're finding retards and mentally ill people. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of this uh, ritual, this ritual. It's a it's a desecration ritual, demoralization ritual for America. That's all part of it. So as Americans, we have to sit back and watch um, the, the, it, right? yeah, the least capable people uh, and read stories about uh, Obama having not Obama, Biden having <laughs> Freudian slip, uh, Biden having, you know, a chronic diarrhea in the White House that the, you know, that the Secret Service has to clean up, right? Like, these are some of the things that are literally leaking. You know, uh, he's, he's elderly. Yeah. He's an elderly guy. Yeah. I feel, yeah. So, in some ways, I kind of feel sorry for him, but you, who's got him in there? Who's keeping him in power? We just talked about him. Yeah. We just talked about him. The guy that worked for BIC coming out of college, the guy that went to Chicago, the guy that was mentored by Frank Marshall Davis and Bill Ayers, that's who's running the show. I mean, it's pretty clear. And, right? and they've got this, they've got this totally mentally, uh, I don't know, he's deranged exactly. I mean, he's just wandering around on stage. He can't, he can't function. And so they there, just have, they must just have a total control over him. There, there's this photo. I'm going to, I'm going to end on this photo. I think um, recent photo. Um, let me see if I can find it. 
And Kamala, and Kamala Harris, she can't even speak. She can't even come up with any kind of clarity and oh, I've, I've, I've done I've done the deep dive on, on the Kamal. There's a recent photo with um, uh, let's see if I can find it. That's really telling about the hierarchy uh, inside of the inside of the White House, and so it's essentially. Um, Obama, Michelle, and then there's uh, Biden and Jill, and then Kamala and her husband. This is a recent photo, and they're all standing together. And in the center of the photo is Obama and Michelle. And then off to the right is Biden and uh, and Jill. And then off to the left is uh, Harris and her turtle on the fence post husband. That is the most recent photo. And that describes the hierarchy of, I think, what's going on there. I don't think there's any, no big mystery about, you know, this is Obama's third term. So, Russ, it's been great. Um, enjoy your evening in the okay. magical we'll city see, of Prague. We'll see you all next week, next month. Next month, we'll, we'll see you on the other side. We'll have plenty to talk about. Okay. See you, Robert. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye-bye. So the great Russ winner, uh, two hours plus of the rabbit hole and the turtles on the fence post. Uh, fascinating subject in looking at how these are made men and the made men come from lineages. Uh, they come from peerage. Um, a lot of times the peerage and the lineages too those are cloudy. They're not always related to bloodlines, although some are. You know, some peerage is purchased. That happens, right? Some peerage is awarded. That happens. Uh, and also the relationship with crime syndicates and crime families who also have a very interesting relationship with uh, these bloodlines and peerages and titles as well. So if you look at history and you look at how these people arrive, Right. Rarely is it due to a meritocracy and based on their, uh, their their powers, their gifts, their skills, their ability to master a number of like disciplines, language, logic, philosophy, law, religion, you know, world history, like the things that you would think that people would have deep, deep training in in order to comprehend the big picture of being on this realm and being able to interact with any number of people from any number of stations in life. Some of that does occur. Road scholars will go through training. Bill Clinton was a road scholar, but it's very specific training. Also, Bill Clinton was kicked out of Oxford because the rumor was he raped somebody. That's a rumor. It's not a hammered into the stone fact. But that's what, that's what being a Rhodes Scholar is about, that you get that next level training. That's what Skull and Bones is about. You're being, you're being prepared right, to go into the world and play a role. And that role has to do with power and assuming positions of power, whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right. So there's a pretty good chance that if you're watching this, you're not a turtle on the fence post person. Unless, of course, you have a passing interest in this stream and you in which case might be and if you are 
Well, we wish you all of God's wisdom to flow into you in your life, in your position, and that the true light of the living God, the Most High, shines brightly inside of you, chasing out any, any specters of darkness inside of your being. And nothing but love. All right. For myself and Jasper, have a great day. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to say what's possible. Uh, Chataria, mods, thank you very much. We'll be back here on Sunday night with Sunday Night Astral Live, looking at the after effects of the eclipse. And there's always plenty of astrology to talk about. Take care. Bye for now. Oh, by the way, I never say this. Hit the like button and subscribe. Tell your friends about the show. And uh, let's see if we can build up the algorithm a little bit.